0: Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager. Today on 30 Minutes, we feature a recording from the 2013 Tucson Festival of Books. Ernesto Portillo, Jr., columnist for the Arizona Daily Star and editor of La Estrella de Tucson, the star's Spanish-language weekly, interviewed Gustavo Arellano, author of the syndicated Ask a Mexican column. Gustavo Arellano is editor of the Orange County Weekly. The two discussed Arellano's book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America.
1: As I was approaching the, the building, there was this long line out of Koffler, and I thought, oh my gosh, all those people want to see Gustavo. Okay, so they, they weren't here to see Gustavo, but thank you for, for being here and joining me this afternoon with uh, Gustavo Arellano, as many of you know is editor of the OC Weekly, that would be Orange County, for those of you who don't know. Uh, He is also an author of several books, uh, including Ask a Mexican, which is one of the uh, cheapest ways to put a book together. It's a collection of his columns, Ask a Mexican, which is uh, carried by the uh, Tucson Weekly. His other book is Orange County, A Personal History which I would have brought, but it was overdue at the library and had to uh, take it back. <laughs> but it's a very thin, thin book because it's his memoirs and since he's about 30-ish, there's not much he uh, wrote about. But his latest book and the reason we're here uh, with Gustavo is Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. In other words, it's a reconquista of the Southwest through the stomachs of the Americanos. Bienvenido, Gustavo Ariano. Thank you, thank you for coming, thank you.
2: Or, or actually, as the New York Times once said, when salsa, took, when salsa took over ketchup as America's top-selling condiment, they said it was a manifest destiny of good taste.
1: There you go. <laughs> and in the book, if you haven't read it yet, it's a very interesting chronicle of the history of, of, uh, and the development of Mexican food in this country as it was introduced by immigrants and then appropriated by, by uh, Americanos and then taken back by, by Mexicanos and transformed into Taco Bell. Which I, that part of the book was, for me, was one of the most interesting, and there's a lot of interesting parts of the book, but the Taco Bell side, and you're from Orange County, Mm -hmm. uh, and Taco Bell is headquartered uh, in in Irvine. Um, For those who haven't read the book, uh, tell us a little bit about Taco Bell, which for many people, I think, uh, reflects or uh, represents uh, high Mexican cuisine in this country.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Taco Bell is, of course, the largest Mexican food company in the world. Um, revenue into the billions of dollars. They're just coming out with this new Doritos Loco, Cool Ranch Taco. So it's it's the company, everyone who loves Mexican food, which is everyone in the United States, everyone loves to hate on Taco Bell. But its its foundation, actually, is goes back to this small little cafe in San Bernardino, California, so all the way out there in the Inland Empire, and a young man by the name of Glenn Bell, who is the Bell of Taco Bell. So there is a man, there is a Bell in Taco Bell. Glenn Bell was this uh, World War II vet who wanted to make millions. He wanted to make millions, and so he decided he was going to do it via Mexican food, and he was going to do it via the taco. So what he did, he had this cafe, this little uh, hot dog stand in the west side body of San Bernardino where historically mo- all the Mexicans in San Bernardino lived, and especially in those segregated eras, and he made it right across the street from this restaurant called Meat La Cafe. And so his hot dogs weren't selling, his hamburgers weren't selling, so he's like, I'm going to start making tacos. So every night after he'd close up his uh, hot dog store, he'd go across the street to Meat La Cafe, eat the tacos, then go back and try to make it. Eventually, he would do that so often that the owners of Meat La said, you know what? Instead of you trying to steal our recipe, just come into the kitchen and we'll teach you how to make our tacos. So he ended up doing that, and, you know, it was the taco that spawned a multi-billion-dollar empire. From there, it just exploded, and now this year, uh, this year it's celebrating its 50th anniversary, Taco Bell is. Of course, at the same time, Meat La Cafe, they're still around. They're celebrating their 75th anniversary. So in the book... In the book, I go back to Meet La Café. I talk to the daughter-in-law of the founders of Meet La Café, and I tell them, like, do you you have any reservations or any qualms about a man taking your family's taco recipe and making billions of dollars off of it? She's like, nah, they've been around 50 years. We've been around 75, and our tacos are better. So it's all good. (laughs) So
1: there. Yeah. Uh, Throughout your book, there is a a list of um, of, uh, firsts. uh, Who was the first to develop the taco? Who was the first to develop the um, the frozen margarita uh, machine? Um, how how difficult was it to document all these first first first? Uh, and how how sure are you today about um, the these uh, first claims of first? All these first, mm-hmm. yes.
2: I- Although we all love Mexican food, the documentation of Mexican food, and actually the documentation of food history in this country is severely, severely lacking. Uh, Not just for Mexican food, you know, history of Italian food, just history of any food in this country. And so doing the research, it was difficult because there was none. Usually if you do a history book, you go to archives, you go to what's previously been written on the subject, and there was next to nothing, really, um, geez. There's one book written by a man named Jeffrey Pilcher, who's really good, called Que Vivan Los Tamales. And there were a couple of other tomes on Mexican food, but nothing as as, uh, all-encompassing as what I did. So what I had to do was literally bits and pieces, try to find any, the little archives that there were there, try to find them, knowing the lay of the land when it came to Mexican restaurants across the United States, not just in Southern California, but obviously here in Arizona and Tucson, all across the united states and more importantly than anything though going to newspaper archives and just digging 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 finding uh stories finding coupons finding ads that could lead me to these first of course first they're always very contested what was the first this this and that and i make very few claims as saying like this is the authentic first so for instance no one really knows who invented the margarita The margarita, which, you know, one of the most popular cocktails in the United States, no one knows who invented it. Some people say it was actually, you know, who invented it and where? Some people say it was invented, you know, take your pick, Tijuana or Juarez. Then it was a take on an old drink called a tequila daisy. And a daisy, of course, in Spanish is a margarita. So I think that's the most most plausible uh, theory. But then others just... Go through the roof. Another one says, you know, it was invented in Hollywood at an old bar. Another one says it was invented in, you know, Juarez or El Paso or San Diego or or, um, Tijuana. The funniest theory was that it was named after Rita Hayworth. Uh, because she used to be a Tijuana dancer, and so it was named in her honor because her real name is Margarita, so yeah, that's not true. Um, (laughs) But this idea of the frozen margarita machine, that is true. It was invented by a man named Mariano Martinez from Dallas, Texas, and I'm not the one who's saying it's the first one, no less an authority than the Smithsonian, They've deemed it the world's first frozen margarita machine, and they actually currently have it at exhi- on exhibit at the National, Histori- the National Museum of American History. Under the, heavy
1: guard, probably. Under
2: heavy guard, because people are trying to, like, mm-hmm. pull the crank down to get that frosty, swir- you know, the frosty swirl. That's what they're trying to do.
1: The fact that the margarita frozen machine is in Smithsonian reflects to you, what does it reflect?
2: It uh, reflects the fact of the importance of Mexican food to this country no less an authority than the smithsonian is saying this is american history and not only that i mean mexican food in general is a multi-billion dollar industry but then you start segmenting it they're still multi-billion dollar industry so taco bell alone multi-billion, multi-billion dollar empire mexican uh, sales of mexican alcohol whether it's the beers or the now that you know the liquors the tequila the mezcal in the billions of dollars Tortillas, And I'm just talking about tortillas. I'm not talking about it's children, corn chips and Doritos and Fritos and all that. Just tortillas alone. In my book, I cited, a, it was from 2008, the Tortilla Industry of America estimated that sales of tortillas of so flour, corn and then maize and then the occasional blue tortilla, sales of tortillas was a conservative estimate of $6 billion a year. This is a humongous industry, but no one has ever really wanted to document it. So the fact that the Smithsonian is now saying, hey, it's time for us to start paying attention, try try to find these pioneering families and stories, I think that says not so much that Mexicans are accepted in this country, but at least Mexican food. People are realizing this is part of America.
1: When you decided to document the history of Mexican food, um, were you drunk at the time?
0: (laughs) I'm drunk right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's later.
1: To think of, of, of the immense amount of um, research you'd have to do and the, uh, um, the, the great number of uh, chile rellenos and taco combination plates, one, two, and three, that you'd have to eat, I'm surprised you're as thin as you are, um, what... How? did this uh, come about, did, uh, the idea of, of documenting, again, this very vast history?
2: Well, it was easy. Uh, research for this book meant I got to travel for two years across the United States eating Mexican food. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that is really, And he's really...
1: complaining about his work. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's really, really hard. But for me, what was it? I'm a reporter by trade. Like, I live for stories that are not told, or I live for stories that are maligned or just told wrong. And in doing this, you know, doing my preliminary research, I, at first I didn't want to do the book, actually. My agent was the one who suggested it to me because I'm also, I'm the food editor at the OC Weekly. I've been I've been reviewing restaurants for over a decade in Orange County, all the holes in the wall. And he said, oh, you should do a book about the history of Mexican food. And I said, no, I'm sure it's been written somewhere, you know, because there's so many Mexican cookbooks out there. So I, saw, I thought, I'm sure it's been written. Then I actually did the research and there was none. So for me, it wasn't so much that it was Mexican food. For me, it was... Here's a phenomenon that I know is very important, that I know there's a lot of rich stories here. No one's ever told them. And I'm gonna go I'm gonna go tell them that it, you know, again, that it involved food, that was almost besides the point. It was hard, sure. Yeah, traveling around the country eating Mexican food was fine, but this was a history book. This wasn't a travelogue, this was a history book. So being able to go to like you know, musty libraries and go through microfilms are slowly decaying because no one uses them anymore. And just, you know, if, if any of you even use microfilm anymore, just, you know, seeing all the film print just like that, it, it destroys your eyes after a while. <laughs> but that's what the research that I had to do. And again, as somebody who wants to do stories i have never been told, for me, it was great. It was wonderful. Where was your starting point? My Where's, start, what would have been my starting point? Was it there in your backyard with uh, Taco Bell and... Yeah, you know, being in Southern California, of course, us this is a funny thing and you guys will love this. Us in Southern California, we think we are the epicenter of Mexican food in the United States. Uh-huh. Of course, we always try to for, we always mm-hmm. we don't mention to people anymore that CalMex cuisine is really just a subpar ripoff of Sonoran cuisine. And Thank I rem- you. and I, oh, it's true. And I remembered this <laughs> last night, I went to Los Portales cuz I had to have my caldo de queso, which is amazing, and also got a cheese crisp with some machaca on top of it. And so meeting the machaca, I'm like, damn, this is such good machaca. Of course, in Southern California, the two places in the United States where machaca is popular is Arizona and in California. And that's a legacy of the Sonoran migration to California from Arizona and Sonora proper. But the machaca in California is horrible. There is no good machaca in Southern California. So in terms of starting points, actually, I went all the way to the beginning. All the way to the beginning – I, I like to think in chronological order, and then after that, like, you fill in the blanks. But I tried thinking, when was the first time that Mexican food became popular here in the United States? Like, what what were the first writings of Mexican food in this country? So I went through all, you know, old travelogues of American scouts, you know, for the military, uh, Texas uh, accounts, California accounts. And, you know, going back to, geez, what was the earliest mention of... I think the earliest mention of Mexican food in American letters goes back to the 1830s during the Texas uh, War of Secession for the Tejanos out there, and the, you know the urban legend was these you know these American soldiers they said that you cannot you know Mexican food will kill you. Mexican food is so spicy <laughs> it'll kill you, and so an urban legend went around reported as fact that cows who would eat the grass on which there laid uh, dead Mexican soldiers, that they died because that grass was contaminated with all the chili peppers that these Mexican soldiers ate. <laughs> so going all the way back to the 1830s, and then just going from there, just seeing how Mexican food evolved. Like, and, you know, and all of this, none, none of this had been uh, grouped together in the annals of food history, but of course in the, in the annals of Texas, these were just a travel log. So from there, just connecting the dots.
0: You are listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Our guests today are Ernesto Portillo Jr. and Gustavo Arellano, recorded at the 2013 Tucson Festival of Books. Portillo is a columnist for the Arizona Daily Star and editor for La Estrella de Tucson, the Star's Spanish Language Weekly. Gustavo Arellano is the editor of the Orange County Weekly and author of the syndicated Ask a Mexican column. The two discussed Arellano's book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America.
1: So when you settled on the idea, after talking, of course, with your your agent and, and mapping out what you were going to do, and you went home and you said, Mommy, Papi, I'm going to do a project, I'm going to write about history of Mexican food, Did your mother kind of roll her eyes and go, ay, mijito, are you crazy? I mean, uh, or or did she give you some recipes? Make sure you include your Tia Chenla's recipe in here. Mi Tia Maria. Tia Maria. Or meme, too.
2: Um, No, they, for them, actually, for them, Mexican food for them is what they cook in Zacatecas. I mean, what, what we make at home, we never, like, the only hard shell tacos I ever grew up with were tacos dorados de papa, which we make right now during Lent. Like, that was the only hard-shell taco that I knew. Everything else was straightforward Zacatecano cooking, which, you know, a love of carne asada, a love of birria, which is a goat stew, although we made it with res, so, you know, of, of cattle. Birria de res, or beef is the word. Um, so when they, you know, we would never go out to Taco Bell. Every once in a while, we would go to a Calmex restaurant, again, just a ripoff of Sonoran cooking, and these combo plates, and for them, it was alien. So when I told them I was going to do a history of Mexican food in the United States, they're like, the only Mexican food is from Mexico. Anything else in this country, that's not real Mexican food. That's fake Mexican food. And when I started doing this book, I, I you know, I was one of those believers that there's such a thing as authentic Mexican cuisine, and then everything else. But the, for me, the great revelation was that no, it's all. It's either all authentic or it's all fake. Because. There's different styles of Mexican food. Just like in Mexico, the food that you get in Sonora is going to be completely different from the food that you get in Oaxaca, which is completely different from the food that you get in Veracruz. So we're, we're all part of the same food family.
1: Throughout uh, the book, there is the theme of uh, intermingling of, of spices, of flavors, of cooking styles. Uh, and and you reflect that in your book with, when you discuss Korean tacos and um, all different kinds of uh, tacos and enchiladas. Um, <clears throat> Since you've closed your book, what new trends do you see emerging in, in Comida Mexicana in, in this country or, or in Mexico? Well, the, the biggest trend right now, we're, we're still going through the food truck
2: phase, you know, loncheras. Why call them now lux loncheras. Some, some people call them gourmet food trucks. But the dirty little secret that those kids don't want to tell you is that at the end of the day, they still have to park right alongside the so-called roach coaches that were maligned for so long. So they're lux loncheras. That's what they are. Um, but the big trend, there's there's one trend that we're going through right now, which for me is just amazing. I call it the gentrification of Mexican alcohol. So for, lo- for a long, long time, tequila was just maligned. Oh, you know, I used to drink it back in the days in my sorority parties, and I got too drunk off of it, so I don't drink it anymore. In the past decade, you've seen now, gosh, everyone from Sammy Hagar to the descendants of Frida Kahlo to, um, you know, businessmen going down to Mexico buying their tequila farm and selling everything from, now they're making new categories like extra, extra (laughs) reposado, añejo, blah, 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 (laughs) and charging you a pretty penny. That's been going on for a decade. But what's happening now is the new hip Mexican alcohol, mezcal, which to me blows my mind away because historically, mezcal was raca. It was what the, I mean, the real raca, of course, is pulque, but we'll get to that in a bit. But mezcal was just, you know, it was what impolite men drank at bars, period. And never made it into the United States. It was just too harsh, too smoky. In the past five years, all the the cocktail movement, all these hipsters, they're starting to bring up mezcal. They'll charge you $25 for a shot and you'll see these hipsters and foodies (laughs) Gladly drink it down. That just blows my mind away. <laughs> That's one trend. The other trend, though, this is what I always tell people. Like, if you really want to be a millionaire, and I've been saying this around the country, so hopefully there'll be a lot of millionaires. The <laughs> one food trend that still hasn't hit, but and I'm surprised it hasn't, is tortas. You know, Mexican sandwiches. Americans love Mexican food. Americans love sandwiches. What is a torta if not just a French roll stuffed with Mexican ingredients? You know, the simplest torta, so some beans and rice if you want some, some carnes, you know, so let's just say here carne seca, stuff that in, maybe put a jalapeño in there. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Tortas have only come up in Mexican food in the past 25 years up to this country, but no one has yet blowing it up on a level like, say, Chipotle did mm. with burritos or Taco Bell did with the taco. So if one of you wants to be a millionaire, <laughs> go at it.
1: Seriously. Now, of course, there are a few restaurants that do serve tortas. In fact, one of your favorite restaurants uh, that he lists in his book, one of his top ten, is Wero is Canelo. Uh, and, uh, and he... Yeah. Oh! Now, he salutes the Sonoran dog, and, and quite frankly, I don't like the Sonoran dog. I much prefer the torta at Wero Canelo. It has that fine... Floury bread, that's just incredible. Um, but, uh Guero Canelo, you came across him how? You, you've been in Tucson, of course, many times. Yeah. Who got you over there?
2: I came here in 2007. 2007? Maybe, maybe, no, it, 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 it was, it I was 2007. T-
1: and he had just turned 21.
2: Yes. <laughs> I, it was during Labor Day weekend, I went to Antigone Bookstore, uh, great feminist books are here in Tucson. And so before that, I had some students from the University of Arizona. They wanted to have uh, dinner with me because they wanted to interview me for something. So I told them, like, okay, take me to a place that, like, I, I want to get Mexican food, but take me to a place that will sell food that people from Tucson would like. So they take me to El Guero Canelo, and immediately I was blown away because we have bacon-wrapped hot dogs in Southern California. They've been popular for the past decade. We just assume, though, that they came from Tijuana. We, didn't, we don't call them Sonoran dogs. We call them Tijuana dogs or TJ dogs or street dogs or ghetto dogs or barrio dogs, <laughs> everything but Sonoran dogs. So I go to El Guero Canelo. I'm like, wow, this is an amazing place. And, of course, they're absolutely delicious. So I ask them, like, Where'd this come from? And then you know, they told me the story of who, you know, uh, the man who's El, El Güero Canelo, of course, how he came from Tucson, or rather from Sonora, and how these bacon-wrapped hot dogs you know, are the thing in Tucson. Then I was driving around and I saw these little carts, I saw vans, I saw tents, I saw restaurants, all with bacon-wrapped hot dogs. And I was just blown away. So actually, in my book, I call them the fourth greatest Mexican restaurant in the entire United States. And I really do believe it. Just Not just because they're the, the Sonoran dogs are delicious, but just the story. Americans can't comprehend that for the most part, at least outside of the Southwest. Like, they'll say, bacon-wrapped hot dogs? How's that a Mexican food? Because bacon's American. Hot dogs, of course, when essentially American. What makes it Mexican? And within the story of the Sonoran dog, I think is. First of all, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, but that tells, again, the story of the continued, the continued uh, reinvention of Mexican food and ultimately, yes, the big, uh, you know, the big F you to these purists who say there's such thing as authentic Mexican food because the Noran dogs, they are Mexican food. They absolutely are, and they're good.
1: This reinvention, again, this, uh, again, this theme of, of food being repackaged, reinvented. When uh, I read the early chapter of, of tamales being in, in cans, in the early part of uh, the last century. Um, kind of made me sick. A little. <laughs> My goodness, I thought, um, tamales in cans, but yet that's how they, they were packaged. And uh, I think the, the, the part of the story with the, uh, the different cities where you found them, New York, Chicago, uh, and San Francisco. Um, you want to recount a little bit of that? Yeah, yeah, the first,
2: first, first and foremost, how many of you have eaten tamales from a can? A couple of oh, you know, really? a couple of folks here. Yes, tamales. I'm
1: sorry. I take that back.
2: well, here's the amazing thing. I ask this because here's the amazing thing. When especially when I speak in front of uh, primarily Mexican audiences, no one believes me that there's such a thing as tamales in a can. Oh, that's right. That's number one. <laughs> then when I tell them the story of tamales in a can, they're just blown away. And for for me, of course, tamales in a can they still exist. You can still buy them, although that industry is. Like plummeting because nowadays you have so many Mexicans across the country where you could just buy tamales made fresh. But for me, that shows you Americans loved Mexican food so much that they were willing to eat tamales from a can just to get that flavor. And the history of that actually goes back to uh, the 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 book. the, The great crossroads of where Mexican food became popular actually happened in Chicago because what happened was during the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition of the Chicago World's Fair, which is a humongous moment in American cultural history, you had people from San Antonio go up to, um, for the Texas delegation, and they started selling what we now know as chili, but back then was known as chile con carne, and actually in Texas, they still call it chile con carne. And then from the west coast, from San Francisco, there was a gentleman by the name of George, I think it was, uh, it was Putnam was his last name, his, uh, his first name escapes me right now. But he had, in San Francisco, that was like the tamales capital of the United States at the time. He had all these tamale men going around the streets selling tamales. So the year before the Chicago World's Fair, he took 30 of these tamale men to try them out because he knew there's going to be, the world is going to be there. I think America's ready for tamales. And so what happened the year before, you know, take his took his 30. By the time the World's Fair comes around, there's at least a thousand tamale men going around the streets of Chicago. You also have to remember the 1890s, Chicago is the meat packing center of the world and also the canning center of the world. So some, you know, canny, sorry, pardon the pun, but some (laughs) canny entrepreneur thought, hmm, here we have this popular food stuff, two popular foodstuffs, chile con carne and tamales. Refrigeration still really doesn't exist, it's very primitive. Let's put these in a can. So they started canning chili, immediately became a multi-million seller. To this day, we still buy chili in a can. In fact, chili be, Chile con carne became so popular that now we just consider it American chili. In San Francisco, another gentleman, he started making these tamales in a can, got a patent for it, became a millionaire, and of course, you know, success breeds imitation. And so the tamale, the tamale canning industry for decades was a multi-million dollar industry. There used, to be t- there used to be tortillas in a can, for crying out loud. How many of you have eaten tortillas in a can? There you go. Exactly. That even That's actually extinct. There's only one company left that makes tortillas in a can. It's, based, it's only for survivalists in Montebello. <laughs> makes no sense. Huge seller in Idaho. I know. I, um, I still need to taste them. <laughs> I've tasted tamales in a can. They're not bad. They're not bad for what they are. Tortillas in a can, though, I don't, I've never found anyone who's ever liked them. Ever. Understand me so. Do you cook? I, the only thing I know how to cook are quesadillas. <laughs>
1: Let me ask that in a different way what is your favorite thing to cook favorite food to cook well quesadillas That's <laughs> all we do. now there's no contradiction there uh, foodie uh, historian of food and all you can do is a quesadilla
2: not at all because what happens there is that I I approach food then just as a complete outsider as just mm-hmm. somebody who enjoys it who doesn't doesn't know how to mix this or do that or whatever all I have to do is just get in there and research and just really dig especially because I don't know how to cook worth a damn you know I, it makes sense I'm a Mexican I you know I have the best cook in the world living at my parents house my mom <laughs> and then the second best cook my fiance she's cooking at home so what happens though is you really do approach food as an outsider mm-hmm. so things that uh, I I would argue, things that a cook takes for granted, I have to ask people, okay, so you're making this Sonoran dog, or you're making caldo de queso, what goes in it? What are the ingredients? What do you have to do? Like, if I, if I already, if I, I would argue that if I knew all this stuff, I would do a lot of assumptions mm-hmm. then in writing. I, by approaching something as a complete outsider, I really do think it gives me a fresh perspective on things.
0: I should try that at my home.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Honey, I'm not cooking tonight.
0: Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Our guests today were Ernesto Portillo Jr. and Gustavo Arellano, recorded at the 2013 Tucson Festival of Books. Portillo is a columnist for the Arizona Daily Star and editor for La Estrella de Tucson, the Star's Spanish-language weekly. Gustavo Arellano is editor of the Orange County Weekly and author of the syndicated Ask a Mexican column. The two discussed Arellano's book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America.